Hello everybody and welcome back. I'm very excited today to be joined by Frederick Gregard. He is the CEO of Cardano Foundation. Frederick, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing excellent. It's a, it's a truly exciting times. They certainly are. It's been a big week for Web3. It's been a big year for Web3. And what we're going to spend some time on today is talking through what is the role of a foundation, what's happened in the last 12 months specifically around Cardano, and then we're going to get into some of the audience Q&A as we always do. Without further ado, Frederick, let's get started. Could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your role at Cardano Foundation? Sure, be honored to do so. I've got this question a lot, right? So I'm always trying to reflect a little bit on what I'm saying and making and keeping it interesting, right? So at the moment, um, I'm doing quite a lot of trail running. I live in Switzerland and um, this summer I'm going to, uh, to do a very long race and uh, it's going to be really nice just to be tampering with nature and. Uh, and you know what a body can do, but it's also a very vibrant community. So it's, uh, it's really interesting to see how different communities interact and how they deploy different technologies and so on. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. So basically, I'm calling in from Switzerland today. Um, I'm an investment banker of trade, and I've been spending the last 20 years building exchanges, democratizing access to uh, capital markets. And uh, yeah, um, I'm a very big believer in public permissionless infrastructure and enabling the whole world to have a say and enabling the whole world to contribute to society and not just a few. Here, here, I love that. And we are here to talk about the role of the foundation or foundations in general in helping to build out that infrastructure. You're the CEO of Cardano Foundation. Tell us a little bit about what is your vision, your mission, and what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, the Cardano Foundation is an independent Swiss-based nonprofit organization. And we are tasked with advancing the public digital infrastructure of Cardano. And for those of you who don't know, which probably everybody does these days, we are one of the leading proof of stake protocols and smart contracting platforms. And um, we don't do that alone. There's a lot of other entities, but some of the more important entities around it is the, uh, the people who actually created the blockchain, which is uh, IOHK and uh, the commercial arm in Woco. And they play a distinct role in also supporting and developing and promoting the Cardano blockchain. Now, the Cardano Foundation's core focus areas is really about three things. It's about bolstering the technology resilience and preparing the infrastructure to be you know, available and able to run critical technology and critical infrastructure for all sorts of different businesses and, and types of operating models. The other part is uh, contributing to blockchain education, education and advocating for regulatory clarity, which is obviously a big thing like we're recording today, uh, a lot of people have their eyes over on the other side of the pond where a lot of things are happening right now. And the last but not least is increasing the use of blockchain by businesses, organizations, and other institutions across the globe. And when I say using the blockchain, I really mean using the blockchain. So I'm not just talking about one use case. I'm talking about thousands of different use cases, but the ones who really make sense, the ones who can change society, the one who can either lower the cost of operating, increase uh, accountability and transparency uh, of an operating model, or even social systems and, and financial systems of the world. 
So you've got quite a lot of mental flexibility required to jump around different use cases, different geographies, and also different parts of the mission, right? The difference between you know, being an educator one day versus actually understanding how might we invest or how might we help support the ecosystem to build out tooling or infrastructure for particular regulated sectors is, is quite a lot in that, right? And, and I, I guess you, you have to jump around in your mental model from, from one meeting to another. Yeah, there was one person who told me the other day that those three things are, are sort of the same pieces of the pie. So if you have, you know, if you think about distributed and decentralized operations, that's something we don't necessarily like. And the reason we don't necessarily like that is because it's very hard to do a disaster recovery. It's very hard to do good monitoring. It's very hard to kind of look at the health of the network and it's very hard to define attack vectors. And, uh, but if you get that right, you have a much more resilient and much more robust uh, security architecture of the internet. Um, so this is something you really want to do. And if you can prove that you get that right, you get adoption. And on the educational side and, and the regulatory side, the argument is a bit the same. Most people know blockchain from Bitcoin or maybe Ethereum, but they are only a very, they, they represent a very little part of what a blockchain can actually do. And they have some very large restrictions. So if you learned blockchain based on Bitcoin, you potentially are missing 99% of, of the influence or the impact it can have on society. Uh, so you kind of forced yourself into a mental model, which is amazing. It did a lot of change, but it doesn't reflect where the technology is today. And the same we see a little bit in the regulatory environment where we saw sort of in the last couple of days, a couple of things popped up in the US specifically. And when you sort of go into the details there, what you kind of see there is that there is some misunderstandings about, we cannot just call a blockchain a blockchain anymore. We need to be technology specific and say, you know, certain blockchains are better in doing certain things and certain blockchains are incentivized by certain functions and others are by others. And, and therefore I think this ability to, to not just educate for adoption, but also educate for security, meaning that people kind of understand from a regulatory and policymaker perspective what the impact of their work has on this amazing new world of, of technology have is, is crucial to, to get to an inflection point where the world is run on blockchain. That's a really interesting point there because I, maybe we take it for granted in the proximity we are to blockchain and Web3 that when a new layer one or when a layer two comes out or when zero knowledge technology advances to a certain point, we're listening to that. We're paying attention to that because that's our day job. Whereas everybody else who's not working in Web3 probably misses any of the major headlines or rather the minor headlines and are probably still up at the kind of Bitcoin and Ethereum level. And like you say, we've seen so many different layer ones, layer twos, um, scaling solutions, other parts of the infrastructure that have popped up. I suppose it's not really common. The average person knows the difference between certain types of cloud or certain types of quantum computing methods. And so why should they understand the difference when it comes to blockchain? But we persevere and this is part of the education for sure. I think it's a really interesting point you're mentioning there, right? Because um, we probably will go into a world where, you know, the whole world, I hope, will benefit or reap the benefits of being on Web3 or being on a blockchain-based economy or, or infrastructure, right? Um, like we do on the internet today, right? But most people actually don't understand how the internet works. So it's, it's, it's quite few people who is willing to, to sacrifice and go into the, to, you know, into the rabbit hole, as we call it, in blockchain and really start, start you know, looking at the fundamentals, right? 
And the fundamentals does matter, but it doesn't matter for the for the for the whole population of the world. It it matters for the people who needs to uh, to build those features and needs to secure those features and so on. So we're probably going to be to a, you end up in a place hopefully if if we get it right that we're going to have a much better world. We're going to have much better social systems. We're going to have much more inclusivity and equitable uh, world. Uh, but not everybody would necessarily understand the, the finer details between staking, approval stake, or consensus, or you know, uh, you know, hashes and so on. And that's okay, you know, uh, because the human race as a species has been specializing through centuries, and it's our ability to specialize who actually kind of made us dominant to a certain extent today, right? So, so I think it's not necessarily a bad thing. But what is bad is if we cut away people and say you're not allowed to do it, you cannot participate in this. Then we sort of get into this uh, sort of bad place where there's an A team and a B team, and the, only the few, you know, the you know the one with you know God looked, you know, uh, you know, blessfully at. They have the ability to to carve things down on a stone plate and can give knowledge to others, right? And 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 that will not sort of be a a good way to scale humanity in the future. For sure. And you've got the kind of age old challenge that the idea of decentralization is going to be most challenging to those who are currently centralized or who are those currently hold intermediary roles or, or sort of centralized mm. authority, which makes it even harder. It's a good time to be talking to you because this week, the first Cardano annual report came out. I promise this wasn't timed. This was a complete surprise to me, but I'm, I was a pleasant surprise. Um, it's not every ecosystem that pulls out an annual report or does a, a kind of a summary of performance or key statistics or you know, a review of how well did we do in the last 12 months. But Cardano has released its first annual report this year, picking out a few statistics for listeners here, about 3.8 million active wallets, um, something in the order of nearly 60 million total transactions, 3,000 plus stake pools, over seven, nearly seven and a half million total assets minted, and about 71% of, of ADA is being staked. That's maybe not the biggest ecosystem world, but those are some pretty significant numbers. I wonder from your side, numbers aside, what have been some of the highlights over the last 12 months? Or as you were preparing the report, what were some of the things that you're most proud to, to talk about? Oh, so I don't know your listeners, right? And there are so many things I'm, I'm proud of, right? But uh, I think for my side, uh, there's a couple of the use cases which I'm very near and dear to my heart. So specifically the collaboration with uh, Switzerland for UNHCR, which is a, a United Nations um, subgroup who's uh, looking at displaced people and uh, doing a, 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 you know, a partnership agreement with them where they're not only having a new way of, 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 of getting funding to displaced people, but they're actually setting aside uh, time for education of the, the general United Nations, but also setting time for and money out to implement blockchain in the engine room and really try and bring transparency and accountability to the next level of uh, a foundation like, uh, like that. And just be very clear, I think they're doing a really good job without blockchain, but with blockchain, you can do even more, right? And you can even maybe be a part of the decision um, uh, be a decision maker in that setup and you can get you know you can lower the cost of transparency and other things so i think that that's 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 very special uh very tree and 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 the, and the agricultural project we do in georgia is also two things of you know extremely proud of um another part is sort of the stake pool operator so we we've basically been through a period of, of 12 months where we've put a lot of focus on um you know how do we get to operationally 
uh, work with stake pool operators in a, in a way where over time we see that the stake pool operators is not just about running a pool, but it's actually about running Cardano and being responsible for running Cardano. So, so building up some teams around that who's going to give tooling to, 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 our, to these operators, but also giving them information. We had a specific track at the Cardano Summit, which, by the way, was a huge highlight. You know, in a, in a bear market, having 2,000 people from the whole world coming to expensive Switzerland to innovate, to collaborate, to celebrate, to do new partnerships was, was very, very special. And it was fantastically well organized, I think, from the, from the foundation side. But I really like the stake pool operators track there because it went very, very deep, both technically, legally, um, from a governance perspective as well. So I think that was a, a huge highlight, but it's not finished. It's something we really need to put uh, put focus on because it sort of anchors this operational resilience in a decentralized infrastructure, which most of us, we like the words and the words sort of like, wow, they're, they're cool. But when you start peeling the onion off, these words are very scary. And uh, nobody has gotten this right yet, but Cardano is on the forefront of that, and 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 you know we are we are moving the possibilities of how to do that and reap the benefits of that every single day. So I'm very 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 happy about that as well. Uh, the developer portal has been doing really well, and uh, specifically I think the showcases. If you haven't been on the showcases yet, this is really really interesting. So it's a sub uh, domain of the developer portal where the community is verifying whether uh, a showcase is unique enough to be mentioned uh, for itself, but it is also verifying that it's actually live and there's code behind it and, uh, and so on. So this kind of ability to, to centrally host something which is verified by the community. And uh, currently I think there's about 113, 14 showcases in there, uh, which went from zero to 114 in one year, right? But if we look at the general Cardano ecosystem, we see over 1,400 dApp builders and, uh, and enterprises building and deploying right now. So as you can imagine, I'm expecting the showcases to, to really increase, but we're, we just don't want to have all this, you know, everything is happening doesn't belong in a showcase. It needs to sort of be rectified and verified by, by the community as being something unique and, and so on. So I think that part was also very, very cool to see. Um, just to mention a few of, of the things we're mentioning in the, in the annual report. Yeah, it's a nice summary. And the foundation itself has grown as well. I think you gave a nod somewhere in the report to the foundation now being around 80 people, which is not insignificant organization. I don't know, don't know the exact number, but something in the order of magnitude. And, and that's obviously come in line with some of the increased activity or increased uh, involvement or some of the new tracks and new things that you're looking to take on as a foundation. For those people who don't know the inner workings of a foundation or who don't know kind of operationally what you know what is the team doing what what is the activity map for you guys help us understand what does it take to grow a protocol or an ecosystem through the foundation's lens that's a very big question huh <laughs> so i think the first thing we need to talk about is terminology so yes we are uh, a foundation but a foundation is not just a foundation there's many different types of operating models in a foundation and and our specific one is is very unique in a couple of aspects so uh, first and foremost, we actually have personal liability and then people don't really realize that, but uh, the, the sort of the, the board and the executives in the foundation, we're actually liable hundred uh, percent personally uh, towards a, a regulator called ESA. So it's the foundation regulatory body. And uh, that's good because it means that there is, uh, you know, like a third party kind of overseeing that, that we're doing what we're supposed to do. 
Secondly, we are one of the few foundations who didn't build the, the, the blockchain. So we didn't build, deploy, and we don't own sort of the monetary policy or anything like that. So that means that we can take a bit more liability in certain places and we can put more focus in certain places where other foundations have to protect their ecosystem from a regulatory impact uh, due to that they were minting the token or so on. So we have a slight different role than many other blockchain foundations have. And that allows us to do something which I think is a little bit unique. And that is that, uh, for instance, we have a fairly large integration team. So we support more than 350 banks and exchanges and specific sort of wallets and other things on integration, but also on some regulatory questioning and some other support areas. So the fact that we sort of can help people to, to integrate and live on the Cardano blockchain, if you, if you fit certain criteria, is, is quite unique and something we hear quite often that people really like our technical expertise and our ability to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that we can help you from no blockchain knowledge to, to suddenly you know, run a business on Cardano. And that's why we are doing this educational program, which we launched uh, last month. I don't know if you saw that. We launched something called the Alpha Program, which brings you from close to zero blockchain knowledge to, to quite some blockchain knowledge. And you even get a certificate on that. And the reason why it's Alpha is because we actually are, uh, this year we would like to launch module one and two. And two is pure Cardano and one is third generation blockchains. And that will basically allow you to, as a, as a business architect or as a normal person to kind of get a rough idea about where does blockchain fit, where doesn't it fit, what is the chinks in the armor, so what do I need to speak to the compliance department, the procurement department about, how do I download the blockchain, how do I deploy something on the blockchain. It doesn't bring you into, it doesn't teach you coding, but it, it teaches you to use it from a business perspective. And I think that's, that's very, very important. Uh, the other part was, so this is, a, this is a, we call it education and, and, and regulation, right? The, the other part is, is technical enablers. So as we're seeing the actual layer one or layer zero, so the blockchain layer is, is becoming extremely mature. So a lot of the things with Trilemma is being solved by really solid cryptography and a good roadmap. What we see is that it doesn't connect very well into the world. So in the normal world, we have, accountability, we have lawyers, we have supervisors, we, you know, you might be quoted on a stock exchange and there's some supervisory sort of guidelines around that as well. And, and, and that means that there, you need a set of tools who allows you to connect the normal world, unfortunately for some people, with the world of blockchain. And um, that's what we call technical enablers. So database synchronization to language, uh, you know, tooling, kits, SDK, stuff like that. So we're, we're doing quite a lot in that space and you will see a lot of news coming in the next couple of months around that. But that has taken us quite some time to enable that and, and to get that right. It's not just something you, 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 know, you pull up or you, you sleeve and you give it to somebody. They actually need to be audited and needs to work and so on. But what we do is we think about how do we enable the normal world to get benefits of a blockchain? And when you go back to what I said in the start, that's, that's really about enabling adoption. So where many other foundations are focusing on how do we give a grant to one company so they can you know, create the next super app. We don't think we have the knowledge to identify the next super app. Therefore, we have Catalyst, which is this decentralized um, you know, you know, grant system, right? Because then the community can sort of do their bet. On, on what is the next super app, right? And we focus more about, okay, so if the next super app is coming, 
How do we ensure that it can scale? How do we ensure that it has the right rails? How do we ensure that it can be audited? How do we ensure that they, you know, that all the you know the business architecture, the business logic you unfortunately or luckily need in this world? How do we ensure that that actually works? Very good. So it's a lot, and it's probably more technical than most people realize. I mean, the the bank integrations, the exchange integrations. Um, there's no no insignificant amount of effort there if if there are upgrades to anything related to the chain upgrades related to the nodes you know there's there's usually a fair body of activity there so i think that's something that most people don't see i think the education certainly um but maybe but maybe less in terms of the technical so thank you for giving us a little window into that i'm interested you mentioned some of the verticals and some of the areas where you're seeing adoption playing out at the moment where do you see kind of the hot spots today my sense is that where the assets are already natively digital, things become a bit easier. But tell me more about what you see. Yeah, that's actually why I was so excited about specifically uh, Veritree and, um, and and Georgia last year, right? Because um, they were speaking about a physical product, right? We're speaking about something as, as plain and something as complicated as a, as a tree, a living organism, or a, a bottle of wine or other agricultural produce, right? Because the thing about blockchain is that Blockchain alone only can serve things who's born digital and die digital. But the world we live in, it has air, it has food, it has, you know, artifacts, it has physical stuff in it still. Hopefully it will continue like that for a bit of time. And therefore you actually need to, to merge blockchain with other technologies. And that's where interoperability becomes really, really important. And to enable interoperability, what we really, really need is something called digital identifiers and verifiable credentials. So because this is the technology we need to bridge to Internet of Things and to sensors and to other databases and to Android phones or iPhones or whatever you need out there to verify that the world really exists and you can touch it and there's sort of things happening there. And uh, so, so I think verifiable credentials and digital identifiers, including your ability to uh, store metadata and change metadata depending on your use case. So you want to have sort of, you know, in NFTs, we use a not, you know, static metadata we cannot change, right? But we also need to ensure that we have the ability to change metadata and upgrade that so you can use sort of the blockchain also as a sort of a, uh, an, an, an upgradable database uh, and when assets change, and not just assets in terms of financials, but you know, think about the tree is growing, it's burning down, you know, the, you know, the, the those kind of aspects, right? So, so where, what I see today is that, um, and I stole this phrase from another famous guy, right? But I see sort of the enterprise blockchains are dying a little bit. It's not quite a lot actually. So this idea that you can reap the benefits of blockchain by having a permission blockchain it doesn't really work it doesn't scale the, the the value proposition is not there but blockchain for enterprises is really flourishing so what we see is that more and more people are starting to experiment they're starting to put it into rfps they're starting to really sort of you know write it out you know when i'm going to do a cbdc it has to be in a public permission blockchain and it has to have the following criteria which is a wording and an articulation we haven't seen before and it's now coming out by, you know, national agencies is coming out by, you know, Fortune 500 companies. And we also see that there is a sort of a little bit, uh, people are getting a bit tired of MVPs and proof of concept. You know what, we've proven that blockchain has a value proposition. So how do we bring it live? How do we scale it? And, and that means that the discussion is now becoming much deeper 
from an operating model and from a technical perspective. And suddenly we are having stakeholders on board, which we didn't have five, six, seven years ago when we spoke about the potential of blockchain. And it makes it much more complicated. It makes it a bit more slow and to a certain extent more boring, but it also allows us to reach millions of people suddenly because you just need to get one or two of those you know, partnerships right. And then you suddenly have you know, access to a distribution channel who services millions of clients around the world. It's an exciting time. And I think the way you phrased it was, you know, the enterprise blockchains or the, the private permissioned chains or private permissioned networks, LAN parties, as some people call them. I wouldn't say it doesn't have value because you can still create business value with a private application depending on the size of the problem and the nature of the software you use, right? There are applications for these things everywhere, but the scalability or the reach or extensibility of a public permissionless chain is significant. And the challenge I think for enterprises is thinking in that way. They've had decades, if not, you know, millennia of history where their operating model, their profit model, their vision and strategy is entirely based on scarcity, based on command and control, based on beating and defeating others. And then you move into a model which says, actually, we can win, win, win. We can engage the, our customers as part of the value proposition. They can be building on our behalf. They can be building with us. We can build in public. We can keep our product open source and we can grow our, our product in ways that maybe we don't control or maybe the ways that we don't necessarily define upfront. And to people who've been growing up the other way their entire careers, this is deeply scary. It's not just a technical challenge, it's a mindset and economic challenge as well. Um, I, I wonder when you're educating enterprises or governments these days, do you spend more time on the technology or more time on the maybe commercial or philosophical sides? What I'm trying to, to convey right now is that blockchain is a, is a strange animal because it's not just te a technology, it's a community. And the strength and the weakness of a public permissionless blockchain does not stand and fall by the maturity of the technology. It actually stands and falls by the symposium between the community and the technology. Because most of the blockchains are probably not open source, but they're public source, which means that we can you know, dig into the code base, we can take what we like, we can incorporate that. And that means that the battle of having the best technology is not that important. You and I can spin up a blockchain with the features we like from the top 10 layer ones, you know, tomorrow if we want to. I mean, maybe a little bit more because we need to pick and we need to agree, right? But, but in essence, we can, we can spin that up tomorrow and we can have sort of a private blockchain between our two servers, right? Who has the best technology in our definition of that. But when you kind of dig into it, the social system of the blockchain is actually what keeps the blockchain and what ensures that the blockchain is there tomorrow. So when you have these situations that, for instance, that you define the community as the, the holders of the native token, you're actually missing the point. There are certain sub-communities in, um, in the blockchain or in the blockchain community, which is uh, having critical functions in the future. So for, I mentioned one before, the stake pool operators and their ability to sort of allow the blockchain to work under all conditions, you know, think about it. Like if all stake pool operators were running on a, on a cloud-based infrastructure and that cloud went down due to sort of an internal 
problem, whatever that is, the blockchain is suddenly down. So you actually want to have diversification and people being on bare metal, people being on cloud, people being on you know hybrid setups, having relay servers, right? So the worst thing you can kind of do is sort of put up a reference client and then give them your like you know zero fees for Google Cloud for the next twelve months because you're actually creating centralization in something who's supposed to be decentralized. But you wanna you wanna ensure that the stakeholder operators have not just the right incentive, but they also have a way to speak to each other. While still being anonymous, because you know that's a, that's a, one of the security mechanisms we have, right? The other part is you have sort of the public roadmaps, if there is any. So with Kadano, we have a public roadmap, right? And if you only have one organization contributing to that, you, you're lost because you will basically um, you would implement a, a world based on one company's views. And if you're trying to target the world, right, uh, you know, there's multiple different use cases, multiple different things you want. But every time you upgrade the code, there's a security risk. It's an attack vector, right, who might take down the stake pool operators, right? So, so you have sort of this battle going on between, you know, a stable, resilient, you know, well-working. And then these business needs coming. Hey, we want something, right? But you don't want it for one company. You want it from different industries coming in. So you're sort of having sort of, it's like, a, you know, a talk of war, you know, this old thing, you had a rope and you're doing this talk of war, but imagine now you have a talk of war with five, six different community groups. And it's actually the strength and the alignment and the ability for these to work together in a collective social system together with the technology stack who enables a strong blockchain. And that's what's so unique about Cardano, that Cardano is on the forefront of that. And that makes Cardano so strong compared to many other blockchains. And if you go back to sort of to to uh, to, to other blockchains or comparable things like Bitcoin, and, and I know I get a little bit unpopular sometimes by saying this, right? But Bitcoin is strong because there is no change. So the ability that nobody is actually upgrading the code at large means that it's very resilient. It's very strong. There's you know, for every block who's ending on Bitcoin, the stronger it becomes. But it also kills a lot of other use cases because you don't get the features you actually need to do, for instance, smart contracting or other things, right? So that means that there will be different blockchains who have different niches. But I think in essence, is this sort of complicated talk of war in the social system in combination with the technology stack who makes a, a you know, who makes a thriving ecosystem. And it's your ability to, to interact and engage with them and also, you have to be aware that you will not make everybody happy, uh, right? But that you need to get to some kind of consensus model and some kind of governance models around these things to ensure that the technology and the social system you've, you are interacting with and, and are, are relying on, that, they, that it keeps evolving over time, but it doesn't defragment or it doesn't split because then you have a security risk. And this is the constant challenge of the foundation role, I think, or anyone relating to growth of a, of a decentralized chain is that you've got a constant tension between what you see as what you think the ecosystem needs versus what the ecosystem wants, what is commercially viable to build versus what's fundamentally technically needed to sustain. And then you've got that kind of flywheel, that network effect that you describe of the kind of the core engineering then the the security so the, the network or the stake pool op operators or the validators then you've got people who want to build on the infrastructure those who want to fund people building on the infrastructure and then you have the customers and the users and each one of those groups has slightly different maybe shared incentives to their token holders but at the same time they still each have different needs user journeys desires 
different tech stacks, different um, outlooks, different investment thesis, whatever it might be. As a as a leader of a foundation, how do you make sure that your team or the Cardano ecosystem is balancing push pull and also giving enough love to to the different groups? Well, that's the trick, right? That's the crooks. <laughs> so uh, I think a part of it is organizational architecture, right? So um, one of the things we've done and very much on purpose is, for instance, our community team is not a part of the marketing department. So what we want to have is we want to have a marketing department who is sort of preaching the gospel. You know, they're you know drumming the drums and telling the world about third generation blockchain, specifically Cardano. Uh, and the reason why our community team cannot be a part of that is because they need to actually be able to say, hey, full stop, you 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 went over an ethical boundary or we actually have a, a fraction of the community who's extremely concerned about what you do right now. And you can't have those two things under the same leader, right? Because then you you create a, a governance problem. So so part of it is sort of is, 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 is this corporate governance really, right? Uh, in a very difficult operating model. And another part of it is that you need to sort of accept the fact that we cannot represent the whole community because the community specifically around a successful blockchain as Cardano is already so big today that what you need is you need an on-chain governance. And that's specifically what we are uh, discussing right now in our community. But what IOG is rolling out is as in the age of Voltaire. And the age of Voltaire is really about the notion that we want to protect the intent of Cardano, the original intent of Cardano, that's what we call the constitution. Uh, very nerdy with us, it's called Cardano Improvement Proposal 1694. And what we are striving towards is having an, um, you know, to write down what the purpose and the intent of Cardano is and make it very hard to change. Then on the other side of the equation, what we want to have is we want to have um, on-chain governance, on-chain tools. So like voting and voting mechanisms where you can do changes to protocol parameters and you can do optimization and you can, you know, do grants and all those kind of things who are ensure that the, that the technology and the ecosystem can adapt to the environment it fits within. And then you want to have some off-chain features. And this is where the, the maximalist gets really worried, right? Because we, we were hoping everything could be running code, but we just need to realize that there is some off-chain needs who needs to be covered. And those off-chain needs is our hope is to gather that in a, in a membership-based organization. Um, and then to make it really complicated, you actually have, so that's sort of three very bespoke things under Voltaire we would like to, to get a solution on this year. Um, you have different lenses on, uh, uh, you know, on, on the operating model. So you spoke about the dApp developers and the people who like to reap the benefits of the blockchain, right? So I call that the value capture segment. That's where you know application models are. That's where NFTs exist. That's where legacy models exist, and so on. And what you want to do is you want to in, you want to you want to increase the value capture. You want to make people filthy rich up there. You want to solve very difficult problems. You want to make a better society up there. You want to change the world. Enable everybody to have access to to equal technology. You want to. You want know, to create all those sort of things you can touch and feel and interact with. And then in the bottom layer, this is sort of what we call the value creation layer, is you have the blockchain. And then you want to have these change mechanisms and you want to have this MBO and on-chain and the, the institution, the content, this sort of decentralized operation merging with the decentralized innovation of the infrastructure. So what we're talking about is the 
It's the internet in the city. We're talking about the construction, the layout of the city, right? We're talking about sewage and you know water flow and stuff like that, which most people don't really care about. They just like it, right? They, they want, it has to be good, right? And then we need to connect those two things together, which is sort of the middle layer, which is this utility layer, which is sort of the shops of the city. Uh, and that's sort of the, that's the cube we're trying to, to, to bring together. And, um, and I think that's how you, you, you build a good society is that you create, you know, a society where people, they leave more on the table than what they take, because then you have this sort of economic sustainable or, or social sustainable way of, of moving forward. And that's sort of, that's the intent. That's the problem we're trying to solve by doing these very hard exercises. And we're doing all of that while the, plane is still flying, right? <laughs> and there's no, more and no. more people who love Cardano, more and more people who build on it, more and more people who has a view on it. And um, and I think that's that's the hard part. Yeah, and describing it as you did, clearly there's an architecture for solving for it. I've never heard anybody describe blockchain as sewage pipes before, but it's a good one. I, I'll, I'll take that one. I'll keep that one for a little while. It'll, it'll come back some other time. I'm sure we can use it. But um, I wonder also just as a final thought on structure and operating model before we get into kind of some of the broader, more expansive thoughts and, and some questions from the audience. The general long-term goal of this infrastructure, I wouldn't call it the prophecy or the vision, but the general consensus is that foundations will eventually become decentralized, that communities will run through governance, through um, their, their own technical means, the roles that foundations play today. And so at the moment, you're kind of going through this kind of parabola peak of you can't achieve success or you can't drive change without having some sort of organization to help drive it. But in the longer term, the standing headcount of foundations or organizations will probably melt away towards membership groups or um, technical committees or growth committees, but that, that are governed by the, the community or those who have a stake in, in the ecosystem. How far away do you think we are from being able to have blockchains or layer ones, maybe Cardano, maybe others, being fully decentralized? Do you have a view of, of where that is in your future? So uh, one of the design principles for the Cardano Foundation is that we should never build an ivory tower. Everything we do, if somebody want to do it, they should you know, take it over, but that we have some, let's say, quality requirements because there's a large ecosystem who relies on it, right? But, but we should not build something up and say, oh, this has to be the Kadana Foundation's favor, right? So we have to build towards sort of the future you're speaking of. But I do think that the current regulatory environment, the current defragmentation of national, uh, uh, national states and, and so forth, leads me to believe that we're probably more speaking about minimal viable centralization than maximal decentralization from these foundations. Because there is some tasks which people don't want to touch. I don't know how many of, of your listeners is going to raise their arm and say, hey, I want to be personally liable towards a financial regulator on a public permissionless blockchain where everybody can build whatever they want on it. Right? I mean, that's not really attractive, actually, right? And that's my job. I mean, that's one way of describing my job today. Right? So um, so there is some places where I think that. In the current environment and with the trends we are seeing today, it's very hard for me to envision a future around the corner, so the next five to 10 years, where there, where there is so much, you know, that there's, it's so attractive to take the job of the foundation. But I certainly hope that we can influence and build a future where it's not needed to have 
a, a central or, or any kind of central entities in it, but there will be sort of commercial activity or, or, or at least, uh, you know, some value to be had to contribute to the community, which is not necessarily the foundation, which is sort of community group or associations. And then as we see sort of the open source software environment, right? The more you rely on the infrastructure, the more you're willing to leave on the table and the more you're willing to contribute. And as more, you know, that's sort of the, the, the top box I spoke about. The more that becomes relevant, the more the rest is sort of solving itself. So, so I do hope that's happening, but I do think it's, we're probably talking more 10, 20 years than we're talking about 12 to, to three years. It, it's, you know, let's face it, you know, if you wanna have a protocol who's open to new features, who's open to change and who fits the society we live in today, you know, it has to be able to change, right? And we haven't solved democracy in the world yet, huh? So um, we're trying to do that with technology now, right? Uh, which I think we have a really good chance of doing, but it's an unsolved problem which we're trying to do. So it would be arrogant to think that we can do that just tomorrow. That's a really, really big point. And I love that you raised it because every time I look at the reference models people that are using for DAOs or for governance, or how would we like a fully autonomous, fully decentralized, corruption-free, censorship-resistant organization or ecosystem to live, we always go back to institutions that we already know. We refer to um, the US constitution. We refer to sports associations. We, re we refer to uh, philanthropic organizations, to charities, to open source software, to Linux foundation, et cetera. These are all models that were formed and existed at times where centralization was still rife. And we're still trying to figure out what's the optimal configuration for this. And in none of those conversations have we talked about autonomous agents most of the time. Right, where we actually allow the machines potentially to make inferences or decisions on our behalf or to um, make proposals based on what is observed in the world. Right? AI doesn't get a look in when it comes to DAOs at the moment, although maybe it should. I'm just, I'm just kind of proposing that because it's what I see, but I, I, you know, yeah. it, it feels like we've got a difficult data set from which to pull from. But if you think about it, right, I mean, outside the general intelligence truly exists, which we don't believe it does, right? We, we still think it's machine learning models and, and, and uh, which is sort of really booming out there now. Um, a machine learning model using neural networks on top of a blockchain will win every single time because it will be much better data sets, it will be much better structured, right? Um, than one who's just, you know, taking, you know, a clump of data where you know, there's zero punishment for adding data to it, right? So that you have all these spam emails, you have all these robots and whatever it has to filter up the, the data cube, right? So, so to at least where we are, I think right now, if we can take general intelligence away and say it doesn't exist, um, an AI model on top of a blockchain will win every single time. And I think the other part is what you're aiming at here is, is if you think about it for a second with the, you know, improvements of AI and, and, and what we've seen and also self-driving cars when it comes, it would be logical that we will have way more algorithms having accounts in a bank in the next 10, 20 years than people. So we need to also challenge the legal model that accountability always go back to a, a physical person or an incorporated entity and start talking about what is accountability towards a robot or accountability towards an algorithm. And therefore, to a certain extent, I have to praise the, the, the European Parliament when they start thinking about that. But I think they, 
the way they kind of try and solve it right now is, is not the right way. They don't have enough data points and they don't have enough education to take those tough decisions. And we also have to think about it that we live on one earth and we can't leave it. So if we're trying to regulate sort of in a, in a vacuum in one market, and then we let the rest of the world just run wild, uh, well, sorry, you're lost already. Uh, you, there's no way of protecting one border or one you know, virtual border right now. We need to think about it, whether we like it or not. We live on one earth. We have dependencies on that and think crosses borders in a way we've never imagined before. Um, so we need to, we definitely, there are some very hard problems to solve. But the beauty of that is that we have seen new voting models on, on blockchain. We're seeing new accountability and transparency models maturing on blockchain. And for the first time, we're now seeing a world where everybody would be able to have, you know, identity and be able to verify themselves using blockchains and be able to have a vote and cast a vote where before we were talking about 2 billion people who don't have a, the ability to vote or the ability to have an identity today, right? Um, so even though it's not exponentially growing in the same way as AI, I think blockchain has a very relevant part to play also in actually increasing the value capture of an AI model. Wow, that got deep quite quickly, but absolutely brilliant discussion and would, would love to have done an entire show. Maybe I need to find a way to do an entire show on this because as as we were talking, the sort of the thoughts around, well, we, we are going to exist in a world where we see more automation, more protocols and algorithms taking taking or having the opportunity to take control. But then how do we how do we teach you? How do we think about it? Right. And it's not um, about the, you know, the Taekwondo Association or it's not about the parish council of whichever sort of small English town you're from. We're going to have to try and reinvent this somehow. And, and who knows how we get there? We're, we're coming up to time. But what I'd like to do before we close, and there are a couple of questions in the audience, um, I'd love to do a look back and then a look forward, uh, if that's OK, mm -hmm. because obviously the last 12 months for all of us have been challenging. And, and for you specifically and, and your work in Cardano Foundation, it's been a big year if your report is anything to go by. What are the things, maybe one or two key things that you've observed from the wider world of Web3 in the last 12 months that you think gives us an imperative for improvement or change in the next 12? Yeah, I think sort of the recent issues or highlights which I've sort of learned in the last sort of 12 months from Web3 is when you kind of look at it is transparency, decentralization and the need for effective governance and evidence-led regulation is, is, is really big. Huh? I mean, we, we had a year of, 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 you know, horrible things happening and they were associated with blockchain, some of it, they were associated with, with Web3, but they were actually nothing to do with blockchain and Web3. But the whole population think it was because it, it sort of had some kind of a, a media affiliation to it, right? So I think, yeah, we need to be much more vocal as an industry and call it out early because a lot of us called it out really, really early and say, hey, this has nothing to do with the promises of blockchain or blockchain technology. But we learned that that was how banking looks on blockchain, you know, <laughs> but that was nothing to do with what a real truly blockchain bank is or can be, and the same goes with, you know, stable coins and, and, and so forth, right? So I think there's definitely some hard learnings there. Um, looking ahead, I think I would really like to do a sort of a huge gap between Metaverse and Web3. I think um, we're doing ourselves a disfavor of using those two words in sort of in the same sentence. Web3 really, for me, has the ability to upgrade the current security architecture of the internet today to upgrade the information and the database we have today and allow us to um, 
and to um, to really think about how we trust in each other without actually needing to go through a third party or um, interact with each other, right? And the metaverse has a complete different promise to it. And I think, unfortunately, we're using that sort of in the same in the same way. And uh, many journalists is doing that uh, as well. And I think this is a this is a huge risk there, um, because there is uh, the, the version of the metaverse who most likely is going to win is the one who has the most money for user experience, which is the five, six, seven largest companies of Web two. And if they're really going to lead us into a world where we're sitting with virtual reality goggles and we are, you know, injecting ourselves with, you know, uh, all sorts of things that we don't have to move from our chair and we don't have to, you know, the ability and the joy of embracing a friend or a wife or uh, a colleague and really talking deep thoughts and exploring how our brain waves are interacting with each other in the physical aspect, um, we, we won't solve the world's problems. Huh? Uh, we will sort of delude it and we will end up in a situation with helicopter money and and breaking down societies and, and civil riot. But if we really can go to the Web3 world where decentralization and changing the incentive structure of the actual way we interact with companies, with commercialization, with people, and bring way more transparency, accountability, and bring the whole world population in there to be at the table and have a stake at the table. We won't make everybody happy. Let's be very honest about that. But we're going to take away some of the business models who's sort of forcing us into um, the wrong, you know, the wrong corners. Huh? So, uh, but that's probably not next year, huh? but that's sort of the battle I'm seeing. And then on top of that, we have, we have some very complex things happening right now. And uh, the, the question is where we put our focus. And my hope is that we can, we can, we can prove the value proposition of blockchain for another 12, 24 months before we see a big hammer coming down uh, with the wrong intent and regulation. We need much more innovation. We need very crowd innovation, not foundation innovation. We need crowd innovation coming in on these rails and not just on Cardano, on all of the blockchains out there. And we need that at enterprise or at least at, at scale. So not for 100 users or 1,000. We need that for you know, 50 or 100,000. We need it for a city state or a nation state. Uh, so it really can test the, the scalability. And some of us are doing that today, and um, we just need more of it. We've probably got time to squeeze in one very quick question before we go, and it's probably related to what you said. I I, I want to build on everything you said there, and I'd love to go and have a, like a little wander down the, the Web3 plus metaverse or versus metaverse discussion, but that's probably for another day. The one question we do have here, I can't see the person who's actually put it in. We support pseudonymity here, of course. Um, the question on their mind is, how do we look at the balance between supporting existing standards versus building new ones? I mean, there's, there's the kind of the old joke that if we don't like the old standards, we'll build a new one. And then we've got one more standard that we have to comply to as, along with all the other ones, but kind of maybe a, a linked also to the point that we were saying around what governance models we're using for reference. How are you thinking about supporting standards or the requirement that if it really doesn't fit web three, we just got to try and create something different. When I started into the world of technology and banking, I had sort of this, this idea, if the technology is just good enough, people would flock to it like sheep, you know, and they would just change the world. And what I discovered was that it was not, it's not about how good the technology is, it's about the social understanding and the acceptance of what this technology will do for not for your business, it's not for your country, it's for you and the people sort of in the vicinity of you. So maybe if you think about LinkedIn, it's sort of the second and third, you know, grade of contacts, right? And, and most people optimize towards that. 
And if we take that back into standards, right? You know, creating a new standard is great, but if people don't use it, it's, it's, it's foolish, right? So that's why we're really looking at this adoption. And, and, and I've, I'm really looking at existing standards a lot because if we see a huge adoption and we see a lot of people are applying the same standard, it doesn't matter whether I think I can incrementally improve it by 1% or 5%. It's, it's, it's waste of time. What we need to get to is a situation where we have sufficient value capture and, and really changing the, the say the, the the sort of the the benefits of the community uh, in that area um, on that standard, right? So so what I'm trying to say about this is, yeah, it's great to build new standards, and certainly blockchain needs way more standards. We are very defragmented in the way we think about technology identity around verification and consensus and so on, but. In essence, what we need to get to is the adoption piece. We need to get to a place where people actually use this at scale and it really solves very large social or business problems. And um, it really matters for them. It becomes critical infrastructure. It becomes the internet, the sewage, the clean water of the internet. That's where we need to get to, right? Um, and and uh, so, so it's, um, yeah, it's really hard and it's, uh, it's very bespoke. But it's not just about new standards. It's also about understanding the existing ones. And a lot of the people, unfortunately, don't bother to look at what's there already and uh, and actually use that. And that's one of the things we're sort of getting a little bit famous for, is that we actually take the time and we answer the public consultations. We actually understand, you know, MECA, we understand some of those things and we interact with some of those policymakers, but not saying, hey, you have to die and what you're doing is wrong. We're trying to say, why don't we stop doing new regulation and we stop start fitting it into the existing standards because we actually think that this could work with a lot of the things we have today well outside what we spoke about before that the legal system is it needs a third anchor point the two anchor points is not enough huh? uh, but that's that's a long x huh? we've got some way to go and thank you for diving in on that that's a more expansive and more pragmatic view on standards around web3 than i think i've heard for a long time so we're at time Frederick, thank you so much for joining us. Really fascinating. We went to some very, very deep and very broad places today, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. I'm sure the audience is too. Wishing you all the very best. I hope the next year is continues to be a great build for you and for Condado Foundation, and stay safe out there. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope your show will be very successful. Thanks again for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. As always, opinions in this episode are mine and those of my guests alone. If you want to find out more, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out some of the other episodes on the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast and check out the YouTube channel also called Blockchain Won't Save the World. Stay safe out there.